Good morning. So good to be with you this morning and be able to share the word. And uh, before we get started, I wanted to, uh, to mention uh, Sue Tracy, longtime member here, wonderful woman and the Lord, uh, went home to be with the Lord this uh, last week, at the end of the week. And um, just wanted to uh, share that with everybody in case you did not know the the arrangements uh, will be this Thursday. Uh, the funeral, our uh, visitation will be from at 10 a.m. And then the funeral will be at 11 o'clock here at Bethel. So uh, take note of that. That's all on the Bethel Facebook. Uh, if you forget those arrangements. But um, just so thankful and grateful for her life and her ministry here at Bethel. And just a longtime member. And uh, just fill my heart uh, with her love and uh, just thankful for her. So as we get started this morning, um, if you're reading through the Fellowship of the Sword uh, reading plan, you should have read through the passage that I'm going to cover this morning. If you um, haven't been connected in with that, uh, just jump right in. You can grab one of the pamphlets and uh, connect with that and start reading right from today and be caught up with everybody. And, uh, but I encourage you to do that and get connected with that. And this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians and um, chapter number 1. But before we get read that passage, where we're going to be at, uh, just a little bit of background uh, leading into this. Uh, Paul is addressing uh, the division in the church at Corinth, and he gives a loving exhortation to them to be united and unified, and he has to remind them uh, that it's all about Jesus. Isn't that just like us needing to be reminded about who, who is most important in Jesus in our life? And, and uh, he reminds them of that and he calls them and reminds them that they are in fellowship with Christ, with him. And the Corinthians, of course, they're exalting uh, one another, the men, uh, the name of men. Some are fighting over who they're following, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or Christ. And, and it's our nature to do that, to glorify mankind and, except for, uh, instead of God and looking to the things of the world. And Paul's desire is for them to be unified in Christ as to their understanding and conviction. You see that in verse 10. And they have lost their focus. And Paul is wanting to, them to hone back in and the center of that target and who Christ is and pointing them back. And, and they needed to be unified. They needed to be unified in loyalty and allegiance to the king, to Christ, instead of mankind and, and men. And, you know, my tendency is to lift up men and get my eyes uh, off of Christ, get them on me. And I need reminding of my calling in Christ. I need reminding of who God really uses for his purposes and his plan. And, and who should really receive the glory for that? Uh, and that Christ receives that glory and we boast in him. And that points us to our, our text for today. And if you're taking notes, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, uh, verse 26 through 31. Let's read that together. It says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, and Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, you speak to our hearts, and Lord, I lift each and every person that is in this room today, those that are watching online, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn to you, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us as only you can. And Lord, that we would turn to you and know you in a greater way. Father, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're taking notes, the uh, first point here I want to touch on is, is consider your calling. Here in verse 26, Paul tells us here that, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Uh, instead, he has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And in this first part here, we have to ask, and this is a question that I ask myself, well, who does, who does God call? And uh, Paul gives us some indication here in verses 18 through 25 on who it is that, that God calls, because he gives some indication here. It's not necessarily, not many, it says, that are, why, that are uh, wise, powerful, or noble. But let's look at verse 18 through 25. And it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolishness? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is being preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength." And his word here tells us that not many of the wise, powerful, or noble uh, were called. And the Jews, they were the religious elite at the time. Pastor Tim has talked about that a couple times in, in two previous sermons. And they were the religious elite. And, and Jesus was a stumbling block to them. And they were looking for that conquering king that, that would take them and conquer all those that are around them. And he would be their king. But instead, Jesus was that meek and humble man who came to seek and to save the lost. 
and they despised him and they looked down on him and they accused him and they killed him. And then the Greeks, they were seekers of wisdom. And Jesus was just foolishness to them. And they laughed at the story of a crucified Savior. And they sought the wisdom of mankind. But all the valued learning of this world was confounded and baffled and eclipsed by the revelation and the glorious triumph of the cross. And... And these, these elite, these seekers of wisdom, not many of those were called. But call, God calls you and he calls me, each of us. In verse 2, it says, To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And those who call on Jesus' name uh, are called to him, are sanctified in Christ, called saints, those who call on his name. Um, I think about my own life and my own status. Uh, I definitely wasn't, uh, I wasn't a wise or powerful or noble person. And I came from a, a large family of 10, and I'm number nine of 10. And growing up, I was not popular at all in school. Um, I struggled with relationships, and I struggled with significance in life, especially when I was younger. And I struggled with salvation. And I struggled with what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I knew about Jesus. I knew who he was, what he had done, and even what he had done for me in his death on the cross. But I didn't, I didn't know him. I knew him intellectually, but I didn't know him personally. And I struggled with that growing up and the weight of that in my own life and having that relationship with him. And... Uh, in verse 24, or actually uh, in verse 18, here it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. And it was the power and the wisdom of God in my life that brought me into relationship with him. And in verse 9 here it says, you were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God had called me into fellowship with him, in relationship with him. And God has called us to be disciples, called us into relationship with him. In verse 21, it's for since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is being preached. And um, I think about that verse, and I, I think about the day that I came to Christ, the evening that I came to Christ. And I was at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event. I don't know if you know what that is. It's an organization at school, high schools, 
they meet together and they'll do some activity or play games and, and they'll do, um, they'll share the gospel, uh, have a lesson for that evening. And I remember that night and I remember the weight that I felt of my own sinfulness and my relationship with God and struggling with that. And uh, I, can't, I can't even tell you what was said that night and the words that were spoken or who even it was of my peers that were sharing that night. But for the first time in my life, I understood and knew that it wasn't about me. It was about what Christ did for me. And it went from here, an intellectual knowledge to a heart relationship with him. And that was only through the power of God, through what was preached. I don't even remember what was preached, but God spoke to my heart that night and my life was changed. And not only has God called me, but he's called you. He's chosen you as well. If you're taking notes, God has chosen you, the foolish, the weak, and the insignificant. The foolish, the weak, and the insignificant. All throughout scripture, we see God used seemingly foolish things, weak things, and the insignificant for his purposes, for his plan. And as I was thinking about some examples in scripture, and I've got quite a few here, but I'm not going to go through all of them. But I wanted to look in particular in one that really catches my attention, always has in this story, in the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. So if you want to turn over to Judges chapter 6, we're going to take a look at this story because the foolishness of this story in my own mind is like, it just seems so odd the way that God would use Gideon, not only him, but the Israelites and how he does this to, uh, to take over the uh, Midianites. And so we're in Judges chapter 6, and the first part here, and it says, The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and Kittimites, came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. And they, they and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So, the Israel, uh, so Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Okay, so that's the setting here. Jump down to verse 11. And the angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in, the, uh, that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Well, Gideon has something to say about that. Let's jump down to verse 14. It says, The Lord uh, turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. 
and listen to what he has to say. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's family. Then the Lord, but I will be with you, the Lord said. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Okay, jump over to chapter 7, and we'll see how God uses Gideon. Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the troops were with him, got up early and camped, uh, and camped beside the spring of Harad. The camp of Midian was north of them and below the hill of uh, Morah in the valley. So the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. Isn't that just like us? Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back and 10,000 remained. Gone. Okay, 10,000 left. Then it gets even weirder here. Foolishness of my thinking. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water, and I will test them there. Uh, I'll test them there for, uh, for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. That's odd. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouth was 300 men. And all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men that lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 troops who took the provision provisions and their trumpets, the camp of Midian was uh, below him in the valley. Now he's got 300 guys. 300 guys to take on, remember the, the setting? The, the Midianites in number can't even count. Okay, 300 left. Jump over to verse 20 of chapter 7. We'll see what God does. So the three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pitchers. Okay. They held their torches in their left hand, their trumpets in their right hand, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run, and they crowd out, cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with the sword. And the Midianites were conquered. 300 men blowing trumpets, breaking pitchers. That just blows my mind. That just blows my mind. And it seems foolish to me and how God would do that. But it's just like God to use something so foolish to accomplish his purposes and bring glory to his name in it. It is. 
And uh, he takes those 32,000 men and brings it down to three companies of 100. Hmm. Other stories. Jericho. You guys know this story in Joshua chapter 6. The marching around Jericho and the trumpets that are sound brings down the walls of Jericho. Foolish. Seems foolish. But it's not. Or what about Samson in Judges chapter 15? 14 through 17. Samson takes down a hundred Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Crazy. Craziness. How many of you in here know who Shamgar is? Anybody? I had no clue either. Okay. He's barely in the Bible. Okay. In Judges chapter 3 verse 31, uh, he takes down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. Just seems foolish to me. But it's what God uses for his purposes. Or what about the feeding of the 5,000 in Luke chapter 9? Disciples are like, how, how are we going to feed all those people? We don't have enough food. We've got five loaves and two fish. But, you know, we're going to have to go buy food for all these people. And Jesus is like, no. Just take what you got. Five loaves, two fish. Feed them. Feed them all. And they do. What do they end up with? Twelve baskets full left. God uses the foolish things. What we seem would be foolish for his purposes, his plans. What about the weak or the insignificant? How about David? First Samuel 16. The prophet Samuel, he's looking for a new king. And he looks to the house of Jesse, right? He goes through all of the boys it's not any of them. He's like, who, who else is there? You got another one? They're like, oh, David, he's, he's out in the pasture. And they're like, he's like, bring him here. Youngest in the family of Jesse, left out in the pasture, and he would become king. Seemingly insignificant, becomes king. Or how about the woman at the well in John chapter 4? Seemingly insignificant, sinful woman. Jesus knew all about her, all that she had done, reveals himself to her. She goes to proclaim Jesus to the townspeople. Or the layman who's healed in John chapter 5, he goes and proclaims Jesus to the Jews. Or even Paul, right here in chapter 2. I'll read this to you. In Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul was recognizing his own weakness and sharing with the Corinthians, sharing the gospel. Mm. Or what about the disciples? Let's talk about them a few minutes. Matthew 4.19, it says, Come follow me and I will make you fish for people. Fishers of men. Jesus calls his disciples the seemingly insignificant fishermen in the culture of that day, 
And they were called into fellowship with Jesus. He was the living gospel to them. Fishermen, culturally insignificant. He chose these men to follow him. He chose these men to be changed by him. He chose these men to be on mission with him. Hmm. God has chosen you. God has chosen me for his purposes, for his plan, the seemingly weak and insignificant for his purposes. To be his followers, to be changed by him, and to be on mission with him today. You know, these were all stories from the Bible that I shared with you, but what about me? What about you? You may be sitting here today thinking, no, not me. Not me. God doesn't use people like me. He does. He does use people just like you and me for his purposes, for his plan. He calls us into fellowship and relationship with him, and he uses us for his purpose and his plan. I was reading about uh, William Carey, and uh, he was a missionary to Calcutta, and uh, I'll, I'll read this to you. It says, while standing in, in Carey's chapel in Calcutta, the remarkable life of William Carey was illuminated before me. At first blush, Carey would seem an unlikely missionary candidate. Born in 1761 in Paul England, an island village, he was thus deprived of the spa uh, spaciousness of mind and spirit that characterized seaport communities. He nevertheless was an eager student, though he quit school in his early teens. His manners were provincial and crude. He was physically unimpressive. At 14, he was apprenticed as a cobbler where he learned to make shoes. As a youngster, he was known to be dishonest. At 17, he was greatly impressed by the writings of Jonathan Edwards. He married when he was 20 and began to preach and teach at 23. At last, in Nottingham in 1791, Carey preached his now famous sermon to a Baptist association on the text, Enlarge the place of your tent, based on Isaiah 54 two. One sentence from that sermon was lived <clears throat> through the years, challenging and inspiring many. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Subsequently, Carey offered himself as a missionary to the London Missionary Society. His first wife, an illiterate, reluctantly agreed to accompany him uh, to India, arriving in Calcutta in 1794. The years that followed were hard and discouraging. Hardship, together with Mrs. Carey's inability to adjust to a strange new world, drove her insane. William Carey refused to put her in an institution. Instead, he looked after her himself, a burden which he carried gracefully for 14 years. Yet this slender man with an inquisitive mind and dedicated heart 
was a tremendous scholar. He taught himself Latin, Greek, Hebrew, Dutch, French, and Italian. While all the while he was witnessing, working, organizing, and struggling with the problems of slavery and extortion, there were six years before he made his first convert. But Carey lived with the vision of attempting great things for God. He did, what, uh, he did not blame others for the problems of the world, but rather endeavored to correct them. William Carey, a seemingly weak and insignificant man, used powerfully by God to bring the gospel. God chose me. He chose you to be his proclaimers of the gospel. Uh, when I was in high school, or actually uh, after, after high school, um, later in my 20s, I started attending Bethel and started working with student ministry here. And I was invited to go to, um, to camp with our students. And while I was at camp, um, and the preacher was sharing about uh, who Christ is. He shared the gospel. He also shared <clears throat> things that I'm sharing with you today about who God uses. And he desires to use us for his purposes and for his glory. And uh, one of the evenings, um, I just knew that God was calling me to full-time ministry. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what God was going to do through that and with that. Um, but that evening, I surrendered to the call of ministry. Insignificant, John Shaw, in my own mind, in my own heart, thought God would never use me for that purpose. But he did. He called me. He called me for his purposes. God calls each of us for his purposes, for his plan. Preachers, teachers, worship leaders, community group leaders, greeters, ushers, mentors, children and preschool workers, missionaries, church planters, bankers, grocery clerks, nurses, counselors, athletes, electricians. I could go on and on. God has called us for his purposes, where he has placed you. For me, he called me into full-time ministry. For you, it may not be that, but he's called you to proclaim the gospel wherever you might be. He desires to use you. The saying, God doesn't call the equipped. He what? He equips the called. If he's called you, he will equip you. And he did that for me. I didn't know what that meant, but God equipped me for his purposes, for his plan. The last point here, God gets the glory. He gets the glory for it. In verses 29 through 31, it says, So that no one may boast in his presence, it is from him that you are in Jesus Christ, who became wisdom from God for us, 
our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification, and he is our redemption. As to righteousness, though our, uh, through our faith in Christ, we are made right by a holy God. Sanctification, because we're not holy, we're not, and we can't achieve this in and of ourselves. I tried all throughout my childhood and in my teens, and we're changed by his power and are transformed and sanctified. As to redemption, when the Lord comes and he takes us home to be with himself, we will be redeemed. Spirit, soul, and body. And he gets the glory. It's his alone. In Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 through 25, and that's referenced here in 1 Corinthians. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth, but the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things. This is the Lord's declaration. He is the one that receives the glory. God's purpose in choosing those of insignificance in, his eye, <clears throat> in the eyes of the world, is that all the glory should go to himself, not to man. Salvation is entirely of him. He alone is worthy to be praised. In Matthew Henry's commentary, it says, All we have, we have from God as the fountain, and in and through Christ as the channel of conveyance, he has made of God to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All we need or can desire. We are foolishness, ignorant, and blind in the things of God. With all our boasted knowledge, and he made wisdom to us. We are guilty, obnoxious to justice, and he has made righteousness and he has made righteousness our great atonement and sacrifice. We are depraved and corrupt, and he has made sanctification the spring of our spiritual life. From him, the head, it is communicated to all the members of his mystical body by his Holy Spirit. We are in bonds, and he has made redemption to us, our Savior and Deliverer. Observe. Where Christ has made righteousness to any soul, he has also made sanctification, and that he may in the end be made complete redemption, may free the soul of the, of the very being of sin and loose the body from the bonds of the grave. And what is designed in all is that all flesh may glory in the Lord. And our salvation being only through Christ, it is thereby effectually provided that it should be so. Man is humbled and God glorified and exalted. For you today, 
The praise team can come up. For you today, is the gospel a stumbling block or foolishness to you? Maybe you're sitting here today going, I, I don't know. I don't know what it means to have a relationship with him. Just like I was. I didn't know. I was struggling with that. Is it a stumbling block or foolishness to you today? Do you know him as Savior and Lord? Do you have a personal relationship with him? You can know him today. Today can be that day of salvation. You may not have heard anything in the foolishness of my preaching today, as his word says, but is God speaking to your heart? Is he drawing you today? As we sing this song, we haven't done this in a while, but during this song, if God has spoken to your heart and you want to give your life to him, I'm going to be down front. Pastor Tim will be here, others. Just come on down, talk to us. We'd love to share with you what it means to have a relationship with him. Don't let this day go by. Be transformed by his grace, his love in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you. Lord, as we go into this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that, that you would speak to our hearts. And Lord, that if there's somebody here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would turn their heart and their life to you. Father, if there's somebody here today that's struggling with how you might use them for your glory, Lord, today they would surrender to your call, to your purpose. Father, we give this time to you. We ask that you would move in a powerful way. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.